Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. to refrain myself from, from bringing a duck call to church, <laughs> but uh, I do think it is a fascinating, you know, the, um, the, it's the female duck that does actually most of the talking, and the male duck has one little sound that he makes, like a little chirping sound, and uh, you know, it's a fascinating how God has made these, but I was thinking about that, you know, we think that our marriages have communication problems, right? The, the mummy duck's like, how was your day? And sweep. Um, what did you do today? We, you know, he gets the same answer all the time. So uh, <laughs> I'll just leave that at that. But, um, <laughs> but I do want to look today in Genesis at how God has designed us as male and female. Um, before I do, I wanted to share this with you. I got a postcard in, in the mail, and um, I'll just read it to you. It says, um, Dear Pastor Aaron and the saints at Cornerstone, I'd like to thank you guys for your generous support of the IMB, which is the uh, International Mission Board. Your support from Fairview, Alberta has allowed me from Kitchener, Ontario to receive training and the backing from my wife and three kids to move to Central Asia to proclaim the gospel we both treasure. Please continue to give so we can be sent and contact us at uh, the email address if you'd like to learn more. God bless your um, your work in Fairview in Christ, Lucas and Melissa. And I just wanted to encourage you with that because I know sometimes we, we give and we wonder where does that go and here was the little uh, just response of thanks for your support to missions and uh, a couple, a family being sent to Central Asia, um, Luke and Melissa. I did email them and ask for some pictures, maybe some more information that we could uh, continue to pray for them perhaps, but we'll wait to hear back. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Um, Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read the same passage we did last week. Um, and I know many were, were gone due to Father's Day and Jamborees, and, and uh, Robbie and Renee had a baby, so they're excused with that uh, absence, so <laughs> we rejoice with them. But we're going to read this, and um, starting at verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2. And uh, can I just ask you to stand with me as we read from the Word of God, please? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. 
Nelum, Onyx, Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Heavenly Father, we just come to you once again and ask for your help, Lord God. We, we know, Lord, that the natural man cannot understand your th the, the things of, of you, Lord. The, we need the enabling power of your spirit to illuminate our minds, to give us understanding, to give us a desire to know you, Father. And so we ask for that this morning. And as I speak, Lord, would I speak with clarity and would I proclaim the truths of your word. And uh, Lord, may we apply them in our lives and see change as Stan prayed earlier, Lord, from today, we would be different and we would delight in you more. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, the title of the sermon this morning is Manhood by God's Design. And we'll mostly focus in on God's design in, as, in men, in manhood. And uh, in the days to come, get to spend some time looking at God's design in womanhood. And so I want you to see this morning that God established distinctions between manhood and womanhood in creation. And because they're established there, they're good. And they are universally true. These, this isn't after sin came in that these distinctions were made. They were there in God's original design, and therefore they are good. And last week we, we saw... Um, which is true of both men and women, that we are utterly dependent on, upon God as our creator and sustainer. And we see that in the way he made us from the ground, reminding us of our, our, our humbleness before him. We are made of that which is most low, but he breathes that which is most high into us, which is his very spirit, the breath of life. And then we also saw that man, specifically, is accountable to God as a steward in this world. And um, of course this applies also to, to women, we will see later, but specifically and foremost to man. And uh, you know we know that obviously all of us know this is a very hot topic in our culture today. This is very sensitive. You can get into a lot of trouble if you want to make any distinction between what it means to be man and woman, right? Our society is so desperately trying to erase distinctions, even if it means going to a surgeon to do so. And so I understand that this is a, a sensitive subject and one that can get us into trouble as Christians. So you might ask the question, well, why talk about it? Why talk about something that's, that's so, so sensitive, so um, quick to get people angry? And the reason that we must talk about it is because of what Jesus said in John 8, 31. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so if we want to be a people about freedom, as God defines it, then we must talk about these things. One historian, William Manchester, wrote, The eraser of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever seen. 
this issue is massive, and it's sweeping our globe. And so I want us to see from Genesis this morning two implications from the creation account as to what it means to be a man. Two implications of biblical manhood. And there'll be some application for the the women as well, so don't tune me out this morning. Um, And uh, you can know how to pray for your husband, right? Or um, I mentioned last week to the young ladies, if if you're thinking about what do I look for in a husband, here's some things you can look for and pray for for your husband one day. Even if you remain single, it's important for us to understand who we are as men and women. So I want us to see two implications this morning. And um, as I talked with the kids, it's crucial when we start talking about distinctions that we understand the foundational truth that we are equal in dignity, we're equal in worth, in value before God. And the reason is, there's a reason, it's not arbitrary, you go back just for a moment in, in Genesis chapter 1, you remember that in verse 26, when God creates man in his image, we find that he created them male and female. The fact that both man and woman are made in the image of God means we have dignity, we have value, we are worthy of honor and respect because we are both image bearers. So I want you to hear that this morning, and I don't want you to feel like I'm I'm making one better than the other. Um, But at the same time, we can understand that we can be equal in dignity, and and even if you're in Christ this morning as a Christian, you are equally co-heirs with Christ. You are worthy of, uh, you're you're granted access to the throne of grace. You are going to be granted uh, access into the kingdom of God, be it man or woman. But we do also see there are distinctions in the way we are to function in the home, in the church. And so I want us to talk about two of the the implications this morning. And so please, for, for the women, know that you are worthy, not because of what you do, but because of who you are, because who he who has made you in his image. You have beauty and worth, and you are, you are worthy of respect because God himself has formed you in his image. It is not tied to what you do. It's because of who made you. And this is why our culture must make us do the same things because they've removed God from whom our worth comes. If you, if you remove the image of God, that reality, then the only way to make us equal is to make us do the same things. But do not fall for that. For the women, you have value. You are beautiful because you are made in the image of God. And for the men, your identity, your value and worth is found as an image bearer of God. And all the more if you are in Christ. So the first implication I want you to see this morning of what it means to be a man in the biblical sense. And we see this in that Adam is established as the main character, as the leader in this account. And again, this is going to sound foreign because we live in a culture where this would get a lot of people upset. But you can't help but notice in the way God made us man and woman that Adam was created and established as a main character. Right? If you see in Genesis 2-7, Adam is created first. There is a created order here that God first put him into the garden. We see in verse 8. 
We see that Adam is given the primary responsibility in verse 15 as the keeper of the garden who would work it. We see in 16 and 17, chapter 2, that it is with Adam that God first establishes the covenant of life, or sometimes called the covenant of works. He gives Adam the command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so, again, we see that Adam has this role of leadership, of, of headship established in creation. And we are told in verse 18, we didn't read that far this morning, but we're told that, that Eve is made for Adam, not Adam for Eve. There's, there's, the, there's a created order, and so you have this clear sense that Adam is the main character in this creative account. Now, prior to sin, I don't believe there was any tension. There was no tension in this created order between Adam and Eve. There was no battle of the sexes. Eve was not trying to, to um, you know, liberate herself from the way in which God designed. That comes after the fall. And so this isn't a bad thing. We must see the goodness of God in his original creation. I pray that you can see that and, and sense that in your hearts. This is a good design. All right? And we think about even a, a movie, and I know this isn't very unmanly, but because um, I think we all know it, Anna Green Gables, right? I'm going to use that, sorry, guys. <laughs> but um, we know that Anne is the main character, right? So if because there's a main character, does that mean that the other characters are meaningless, that they have no purpose in the story, that they have no place? Absolutely not. It would be a terrible story if it was only Anne, you know, and her little trek through... Uh, her, her life, if there was no one else in the story, right, you have her best friend, Diana Barry, and then the man she would marry, Gilbert Bly, right, you have these other characters, and they serve a beautiful role in giving the story fullness and giving it beauty, but because they're not main characters, it doesn't take away from their role, so um, I thought I'll also, and then I'll try to do a more manly uh, <laughs> analogy, but you think of even a, a ballet or a dance, the beauty of it is that each person knows their steps. They know the part they have to play. They're not trying to do the same thing. They know that they are to complement one another. And that's the beauty of it. And I thought maybe of the example of, uh, of team roping, right? If you got two guys that are going to rope a steer, one takes the head and one takes the heels. If both are fighting to rope the head, they have no chance of, of getting that trophy or, or or finishing the, the task at hand. They must know their place. And in the same way, I want us as men and women to see God's design and see it as good. And so, for my wife and I, we've struggled through this, um, and we continue to, obviously. <laughs> it's not something we ever totally figure out. But I remember when we were uh, fairly newly married, we had one son, and, and I'm going to tell on her. I don't think she'll mind, but... Um, we, we saw the analogy even of, of the duck, right? The mallard duck and the, the brown duck. And, and one of the questions she was wrestling with is, I just need to know if I'm a brown duck. Is my role not as upfront, not a role of leadership, but rather but more behind the scenes and, and nurturing and serving and caring? And, and as we wrestled through that, there was tremendous freedom and help brought to our home. And it put the responsibility on me as a man to step up, which is a terrifying thing. But when you start to understand this is God's design, we can call upon him for the strength to walk in it and to honor him 
in the way he has made us as men and women. And I know for, well, I don't know, but um, in, in, in walking through this with my wife, for you as women, it can be a terrifying thing to hand the reins to your husband because you, you, you feel like he's surely going to drive this thing over the cliff, right? If I give him the reins, we're going over the cliff. And I don't want to do that. And uh, I can't guarantee you that he won't drive it over the cliff. But sometimes as men, as we understand what God has called us to, we need to fall flat on our face. We need to see that we are responsible. We are accountable. And just as God comes to who in the garden after they fall, he comes to Adam. What have you done, Adam? Even though Eve was the first to bite of the fruit, and so, men, we, we need to sometimes fall to realize we are responsible, we are accountable to lead our homes, to, to guide our family in the word of God and in times of prayer. And, and who is it that's filtering the, what comes in through the television or through the, the tablet? Fathers, you need to be initiating, leading in those things, not just walking out the door and saying, having a, a great day, but you, you walk with your wife, you, you lead out in these things because we have been given this role of a, of a main character and uh, of leadership. And we'll talk more about the fall and how the, the devil tries to reverse this order um, in the days to come. But, but man, I, I, want, I do want to encourage you. Um, our own fallen nature, we're quite happy not being the main character, right? We're happy to stay in the shadows and play our video games or work on our hobby or busy ourselves at work. We don't want to be the main character in the home or in the church. We, we, we're happy to just hands off and, and let everything carry on. But we cannot because God has called us to a place of leadership and responsibility. And, and we know in our own fallenness, right, that God gives us a role of responsibility and to be strong and to be courageous and he calls us to have wisdom but often we feel weak and irresponsible and cowardly and foolish and lazy and we, we, we battle that internally and so we just decide to withdraw because surely we will fail anyways. But instead of withdrawing, men, you need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ who will fill you with his spirit and enable you and give you the strength. And for you as women, you need to be praying for your husband. Lord, help him to look to you for the courage and strength to lead our marriage, to lead our home. And you seek to support him in that and encourage him. And I know it, you want to just start nagging him because then maybe he'll do something. And then we have the opposite effect of withdrawing further um, and so you need to seek ways to do that in a, in a gentle way. Um, sometimes think that as men, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as a, as a giant oak tree, but in reality we're like a little fragile plant and the slightest wind will, will flatten us and, and we'll just give up. And so ladies, think of your men that way. They're like a little, a little plant. You need to be careful. You need to, be, to nurture them, to encourage them gently and kindly. Because as strong as we put ourselves out there as often, we battle with doubt and fears and feeling ourselves inadequate for the task at hand. And as, as I said, this, this must begin in the home. And we see it as a good design because it is here in creation 
before sin comes in. And so that's the first implication this morning, that man is created to lead, he's created to play a main role in the story. And the second one, the second implication, um, which overlaps, so it'll be fairly short, is that man is accountable to God as the head. Because of this created order, because of the way God has established it, it is the man who is first and foremost accountable for what happens in his home, what happens in the church. And as I said, God established this covenant with Adam in verse 16 and 17, um, sometimes called the covenant of life, which is tenly how I refer to it. We don't see God telling Eve in the same way this commandment. And so you can assume that Eve, Eve knows it because in chapter 3, which we'll look at later as well, Eve recites it back to the serpent, the covenant that they have with God, uh, and she adds in not even touching it in 3 verse 3. But she knows, the, she knows the covenant, and so you can assume that as God gave it to Adam, he was responsible to communicate that to his wife and to make sure that she also understood that as the head of the home. And you can also see why as Adam is standing there by Eve, refusing to lead. He should have stepped in front of Eve and said, excuse me, serpent, however strange it would have been talking to a serpent, right? But excuse me, you're talking to my wife. I know the covenant we've made with God, and, and no, we cannot eat. Instead, Adam stands there in silence and leaves his wife to, uh, to talk to the serpent. And men, we cannot. We are accountable to God. And a few weekends ago, I got to help out with the bonfire at the Jamboree with the young people. And uh, we, we, I kind of did an interactive sermon, more, more or less. And after we had some time of question and answers, and one of the girls asked me, because we were talking about Adam and, and how we're connected to him according to our nature, apart from Christ. And she asked me, she said, well, why is Adam blamed for what happened in the garden when Eve was the first one to eat, when she was the one deceived? Why is even Paul refer to Adam as the one responsible? That's a great question. And the answer is because of this created order and because God has established man to be accountable to him, to lead his home and to guide them and to protect them. Now, you might think, well, yeah, that's fine. That's just Old Testament. This, and this is the argument you'll hear today, even in Christian circles. Well, that's just a cultural thing, and we don't actually have any distinction. There's, there's no difference anymore. That's all, you know, you're going to the Old Testament, and, and then we're in the New Covenant, so don't, don't bring those things over. Well, flip over just for a moment, and I want you to see something. We certainly don't have time to to dig deep into these passages, but I want you to see how the New Testament deals with this issue. Where do they go? And uh, turn just a moment, 1 Timothy 2. How do the New Testament authors, including Christ, deal with the issue of who we are as men and women and also marriage? I just want you to see where they go because I think it's very important. 1 Timothy 2 and uh, verse 8. And we'll just read a bit so you get what, what Paul's uh, comments are here in, in his statement. Um, Paul says in, in verse 8, 1 Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but well with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not 
permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now listen, listen to why Paul says there must be these distinctions. He, he's, where does he go? He says, rather she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I know some of these passages can raise a lot of questions really quick, right? Um, a few comments I'll just say so as not to leave us with all these questions turning in our minds. Um, when Paul uses the word quietly, if you flip back, uh, at least back in mind, you look, Paul uses that exact same word in chapter 2 and verse 2, talking to the, all the Christians. He says that we should lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. It's not, a, it's not a word that means total silence, right? As Christians, we're already often labeled weird enough without being mutes, you know, like a bunch of Mr. Beans walking around unable to talk, right? That's not what Paul's getting at. It's rather a heart of, of quietness, a spirit of gentleness, this kind of attitude that we are to have. And so Paul makes these distinctions in the leadership of the church and the primary role of teaching. Why? Because of the created order that God established. And that's what I want you to see. And if you're wondering, well, what does he mean by saved and childbearing? Um, as I understand, that, that primarily means that Eve, who was now has the stigma, the woman has the stigma of leading humanity into sin, she will be saved from that stigma. This isn't ultimate salvation, because we know that comes by faith alone, by the grace of God. It's not something we do by works, Paul says. So she is saved from that stigma as she raises up a godly seed, and as she raises up um, those who will seek the Lord, that stigma is reversed, is, is how I understand that. And of course, Christ himself came from woman who would bring salvation. So that's one passage, and like I said, we can't exhaust that by any means, but I want you to see that they go to the created order. Flip back just for a moment to 1 Corinthians 11, another very uh, controversial passage, and I'm, I'm not trying to uh, stir anything up here. I just want you to, to mostly see where do they get their foundations for who we are as man and woman. And Paul, again, writing in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he actually even goes beyond the created order, to, to talk about this distinction. And in verse 3, he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see what Paul's doing? There, he's actually rooting the fact that we have distinctions as man and woman in the very existence of the triune God. Because God, who is three and yet one, who the Son, being God, submits himself willingly to the Father. It would only make sense as God creates a people in his image that there would be this dynamic of equal and yet different. Equal in dignity, equal in essence, equal in worth, and yet having a unique role to play in the story. And so Paul there goes even to God himself. But farther down in verse 7, and he's talking about, in Corinth, this issue of head covering. And, and the, anyways, we won't get into all that right now, but obviously at Cornerstone we don't believe we, women have to wear a head covering. And I think Paul answers that, that even hair itself is a covering. 
um, but rather this principle that Paul is after. And he said in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. So even as the angelic hosts look upon God's design, they see these distinctions, and Paul says that's good. And then Paul, I think, assuming that the men want to think themselves, you know, better, he reminds them, now, nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of the man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So now, after the first man was made, man is born of woman. So let us be humble, Paul is saying as men. We're not, we're not the, the be-all and end-all of humanity. The wife is equal in dignity and worth and value, even though we have these significantly different roles to play. And the last one, just flip back for a, for a moment to Matthew uh, 19, and this is Jesus talking about the issue of divorce and remarriage. And I want you to see where Jesus goes. When he's looking for the basis of why he's saying what he's saying, where does Jesus go to establish that foundation? Matthew 19, verse 5. I'm sorry, um, I'm going to mark here. Matthew 19, verse 5. Jesus talking about the issue of divorce and remarriage. Where does he go in verse 4? He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Jesus quoting there? He's quoting Genesis 2. Jesus sees the created order of manhood and womanhood and the establishment of marriage as flowing from God's original design. And so... This isn't just an Old Testament issue. It's not just a cultural thing in Corinth or a cultural thing in, in Ephesus. This is something that God has established, and I pray that, that we can seek to honor God and, and, and exalt God in the way that we function. And I don't want you to hear me as though I'm calling you out, because honestly, when, when we were coming just as a guest speaker once in a while, a year ago, um, I was so encouraged and blessed to see how you have already are expressing this reality in the church. That you have the elders graciously leading the body from the front, standing up, being accounted for. And while, you, while the ladies have a beautiful place to, to see you serve and encourage and use your gifts to build up the men. And, and I see these things happening. I want to encourage you in that. Press on. Praise God for that. It is extremely rare in this day and time. And so I'm not just trying to call you up, but affirm as to what you are doing. And I want, you to, I want to encourage you to continue to do that. I'm going to close with this. And I want you to see this is kind of, I guess, potentially a, a final implication. But um, the greatest implication of this and, and the, the beauty of God's design is to who we are as men and women Turn to Ephesians 5. I just want you to read one verse in Ephesians 5. And it is, I'll back up to 29, 5:29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The most beautiful and I think one of the most foundational things that we must hold on to in this establishment as men and women is that it is a portrait pointing us to Christ, Jesus, who would come as a man, as one who would be accounted for, who would lead. And he appoints Christ to rescue a bride. And so even in Genesis, I believe God is for, foremost looking forward to the time when Christ Jesus would come. And he's saying, if you want to know a little bit of what it's like when my, when my son comes and redeems a people, it's a little bit like marriage. And I'm going to establish these distinctions as man and woman so you can get a little picture of the gospel in your marriage as we relate to one another. Paul says it's pointing us to Christ Jesus. And when we want to know, men, how to lead our homes, what it means to be a man, we look at Christ and we see him kneeling on the floor, washing the feet of his disciples. It is not with a heavy hand. It is not with, with our brute force or, or demanding our wives. It is with a servant, sacrificial heart who will lay down their life if they need to. And ladies, I know if a man is loving you and leading you that way, it's not hard to follow, right? If he is laying down his life, he's giving of his time, he's giving of his, of his energy to serve you, to serve the children, there's no, there's no problem following him. Right? And I want us to see this is exactly the picture of Christ who would come perfect but become unclean for our sake. If we will call upon him, we find forgiveness, not because of what we do, but because of his sacrifice that was totally sufficient and totally our debt to pay. And then he rises from the dead in victory, offering salvation to any who would call upon him. That's why these things are important. That's why we cannot redefine marriage. We cannot redefine what it means to be man and woman because then we lose the very picture of the gospel that God established. And so I pray that uh, we rejoice in this and uh, we walk in it. And I know that even the, the imagery of a main character is like, man, I want to be the main character, right? I, why does he get to be the main character? Well, it's not the kind of character where someone hits the golden buzzer and confetti falls from the ceiling and, and lights are flashing around. That's not the kind of main character, right? That's not the imagery of the Christian life. What if we switch the metaphor to that of a war? And if the man is called to be the main character, he's the first one on the battlefield. He's the first one to go without sleep when the night watch is needed. And when the rations are low, the man is the one to go without food for the sake of his family. That's the picture. That's the kind of character that we're looking for. It's not one of praise and glory and confetti. It's one of dying to self every day, laying down your rights for your wife, as Christ did for his church. Let me close with prayer. I appreciate your patience. Um, I know it's a massive subject, and I just, yeah, lots more to say, but we'll leave it at that for now. Let's pray. Lord God, we do acknowledge, Lord, that 
we struggle with these things, Lord, because they seem often so far removed from our experience, so far from the message of our culture, and they sound almost like bad news, God, at times. But Lord, as we look at Christ and we see what he did in coming and dying, giving of himself to rescue a bride, Lord, we see the beauty of this design, and I pray that it would be good news to our hearts, and as men, we would lead, we would nurture our families in your word and prayer, Lord, and as for the women here, I pray, God, that you would give them hearts that delight in you. And as that delight overflows into their family, that there's a spirit of gentleness, of kindness, of grace and patience. And Lord, as a church, that we would demonstrate these things in a way that's honoring to you. And Lord, as we give of our tithes, Father, we thank you for having resources to give and even seeing how we've blessed people, Lord, like Lucas and Melissa. I pray that you would honor that as well, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless. God bless.